Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Amen. Hey, today we're finishing off uh, the series that we began at the start of the year, um, which is called Foundation. So important that we do have some kind of firm foundation to live by. Uh, I find it really, really interesting. Uh, I try to avoid it, but I kind of get sucked into reading feeds when blogs go a little bit out of control, uh, particularly when people are theologizing and uh, you get into spiritual discussion. And some of the ridiculous arguments that Christians get into online uh, just leaves me scratching my head. And uh, I'm particularly intrigued by what seems to be a really, really popular notion, and that is that uh, Jesus, when he came and, and the new covenant came into being, that everything old was done away with. That uh, the old covenant, the Old Testament, it was, it's all now irrelevant under Jesus. Uh, I, I want to tackle that today, and I'm going to bring a message that's probably the most revisited message that I've bought in the almost 19 years of this church, because it's a really, really critical message. And so I'm going to read from Matthew uh, 5 and 17. Traditionally, we call this the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law... You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I want to suggest this morning that perhaps some of the most discouraging words that Jesus ever bought in the three years of his public ministry. Because his audience, here we have the nation of Israel. And if you asked what the nation of Israel's biggest problem was, they would probably maybe suggest that years ago, God passed down the law through Moses on Mount Sinai, laws etched into tablets of stone. And ever since God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, there's one word that you can write across the history of the nation of Israel, and it's the word failure. And you read through the Old Testament and the historical books of the Old Testament record that failure. The poetic books of the Old Testament kind of lament that failure. The prophetic books of the Old Testament preach about that failure. And suddenly in the midst of this ongoing history of failure, Jesus appeared preaching the good news. That's what the word gospel means. It means good news. And if anyone ever needed good news, it was the people of Israel. And as they went up the hill to hear Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, they probably were saying things to each other like this. Hey, what do you think the good news is going to be? And somebody might have said, well, I think the good news might be that God's going to soften just a little bit. 
Because up until now, it seems God has been so difficult to please and we always seem to be upsetting him. Somebody else may have said, yeah, I agree with that. I actually think the good news is going to be that God is going to be a little bit more understanding than he has been in the past. Somebody else may have said, yeah, I agree. Maybe instead of having 10 commandments, he's going to revise it. We'll only have six. That'd be good. Now, the reason I suggest perhaps that may be the kinds of things that people were talking about is that Jesus seemed to anticipate that in this Sermon on the Mount. In verse 7, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of prophets. In other words, he's saying, Hey guys, don't get the wrong idea here. I have not come to apologize to you for a law that you've been um, unable to keep. I've not come to change something that's been difficult for you up until now. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And that's what I want to talk about today. What does it mean when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law? Because that statement on its own doesn't sound terribly exciting, but perhaps that's because we don't fully understand what it is that he's saying. But I really encourage you to just stay with me today. And if you get a hold of what I'm saying, I think for some of us it might actually revolutionize our faith. What does it mean when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've not come to reduce it. I've not come to change it. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to make it work. So I want us to understand three things about the law. The first two are really, really important for us to understand. First, we need to understand the purpose of the law. Secondly, we need to understand the effect of the law. That is, what does the law do in us? How does it change us? Then the third point ties it all together. That's the fulfillment of the law. What does Jesus mean when he says, I have come to fulfill the law? So firstly, the purpose of the law. Why was it when God gave the law, he gave these 10 particular commandments? Why didn't he give us 20? And why not just six? And why these 10 in particular? And if we're totally honest... As you look at the law, as God has given it, it is so high, it is so demanding. Humanly speaking, it is so unreasonable that nobody's ever been able to keep it. There is no doubt you could walk up to a total stranger on the street. You could walk up to them and say, you've broken the law of God and you'd be 100% right. And they could respond to you without even knowing you. And so have you. And they would be 100% right. Because the truth is no man, no woman, no boy, no girl has ever been able to keep the law of God, which raises a really important question. Why did God give us laws we couldn't keep? Now, we know we need rules in society. We need rules in life. We need rules in organizations. We need rules in our church family. But I would suggest that as a basic principle, if you make a rule that's impossible to keep, it's a bad rule. And if you make rules that people can't keep, you're actually asking for trouble. And yet God has given us a set of Ten Commandments and we all agree they're fine, they're good. But every single one of us has failed to keep them. So why did God give us a set of laws that we couldn't keep? Further to that, what is the criteria that actually determines what the law should be? Well, we can answer that question by looking at two passages in the New Testament that actually describe what sin is. Now, we've spoken about this on a number of occasions, but the word sin 
is actually an old archery term which means to miss the target, to miss the mark. So if you take an arrow and fire it at a target and you miss the target, it's called sin. If you miss by a centimetre, it's sin. If you miss by a metre, it's sin. If you miss by half a kilometre, it's sin and you're a really bad archer. Because sin is not a measurement of how bad we are. Sin is a measurement of how good we're not, if you can understand the difference. It's only us who seems to get all caught up with how bad everybody else is. If you miss a bus, you've missed it. If you miss it by 10 minutes, you've missed it. If you miss it by an hour, you've missed it. You don't congratulate yourself when you miss a bus by 30 seconds. You don't say, oh, it was pretty good today. I only missed the bus by 30 seconds. If you missed the bus, you missed it by how much is totally irrelevant. And God is not concerned with how bad people are. God is only concerned with how good we're not. If you've missed the target, you've missed it by how much is totally irrelevant. So if to sin is to miss the mark, then sin is actually a relative term. Because you won't know what sin is until you know what the mark is. 1 John 3 and 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So there John is actually defining sin as breaking the law. In other words, anytime you and I sin, no matter what that sin is, we are breaking the law of God because the law represents the target that we miss every time we sin. Now that doesn't answer the question why the law is what it is. It simply tells us that the law is the target. Now keep that verse in mind and we'll compare it to Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now Paul is saying that everyone who sins, no matter what that sin is, they fall short of the glory of God. So if you put those two verses together, John says that when we sin, we break the law of God. Paul says that when we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. If you put those two together, we discover that the law of God and the glory of God are the same thing. Stay with me. So if we're to answer the question, why is the law what it is? We must also understand what the glory of God is. Now that word glory appears in Scripture on a number of occasions, only with a very, very slight variance of meaning, but essentially it is described as the character of God. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says that the glory of God is the character of God, what he essentially is and does. John 1 and 14, the word speaking of Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when John says we saw Jesus' glory, he's not talking about some ethereal halo of light over his head. He's talking about the fact that in Jesus, we see perfectly displayed the moral character of God. So if you want to know what God is like, check out Jesus. And you see in Jesus, in how he lived his life, how he worked, how he talked to people, how he served people, how he treated people. John is saying, when we observed how Jesus lived his life, we saw what God was like. 
Because the glory of God is the character of God. And when the word Jesus became flesh, we saw in Jesus the moral character of God. Now listen, if that is true of Jesus, it was not only meant to be true of Jesus, but it was meant to be true of every single one of us because we have been created in the image of God. Which means if you observed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they sinned, you would have seen in their behavior the character of God. You would have seen in the way they loved each other, the way they responded to each other, the way they cared for each other. You would see in the way they lived their lives the very character of God because they were created in the image of God. To, to perfectly demonstrate the moral character of God. But then, if you know the story, they sinned and they fell short of the glory of God. And we carry that in our DNA to this very day. So if the law represents the character of God, listen to this. The law was not given to us as an impossible set of rules to keep. The law was given to us that we might understand the character of God to show us what God is like so that human beings could then understand what we are supposed to be like having been created in God's image. The reason the law says you shall not steal is not just because it isn't nice, but it reveals to us that God is not a thief. The reason the Bible says you shall not bear false witness is because God doesn't lie. You're created in His image, so don't lie. When, when, the, when the law says do not commit adultery, it's because God is totally, totally faithful. We're created in His image, so remain faithful. Don't commit adultery. When the law says children, honour your parents, it's because in the Trinity, the Son, Jesus says, I always do the things that please the Father. We're created in His image, therefore children, honour your parents. Friends, get a hold of this. The law is not this arbitrary set of rules. The law was given to reveal to us what God is like so that human beings might understand what we are supposed to be like, having been created in His image. But we've sinned, we've fallen short of the target, and we're all confused. So to answer the question, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to reveal to us the character of God. I hope that makes sense. Stay with me. So if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, the second thing we need to understand is the effect of the law. What effect does the law have on us? If the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, the effect of the law is actually to reveal the failure of humanity. So when Moses came down from the mountain, struggling into the camp with these two huge tablets of stone, the first command was... You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there is no other God. The second command was, you shall not make a graven image and bow down and worship it. And if you're familiar with the story, the first thing he sees when he comes into the camp is in Moses' absence, the people had pulled all their gold together, melted it down, made a calf, and here they are worshipping this graven image. When, when Moses saw this, and he knew the first command was no other God, second command, no graven image. 
he was so shocked and angry that he actually smashed the tablets on the ground and then thought, oh, that was a stupid thing to do. I better go up the mountain and get another set. And he did. Now, listen, Moses was shocked, but God wasn't shocked because God didn't learn something new about human beings that day. Human beings learned something new about themselves. They discovered, I cannot be what God requires me to be. Romans 7 and 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except for the law. In other words, you could be up to your neck having a wow of a time, totally, totally living a sinful life, enjoying every bit of it until the law comes. The law didn't make you a sinner. The law simply exposed you as a sinner. So if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, the effect of the law is to expose our own failure. Through the law... God shows us our own weakness and inadequacy and failure and sin. Jesus emphasizes this point in Matthew chapter 5 during the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. And I imagine the people who are sitting there listening to this going, yeah, that's, we, we know that one. We like that one. That's a good one. We shall not kill. That's cool. Jesus said, I say unto you. That even if you are angry with your brother, even if you would never raise a fist against him, even if you're angry with him, even if you would have no intention of doing him any physical harm at all, you're already guilty of murder. The people probably turn to each other and say, what on earth is he talking about? Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, we've heard that one. We know that one. I say to you, said Jesus, that if you look at a woman and you lust after her, even if you don't know her name, even if you have no intention of getting to know her, even if you would never dare approach her, you're already guilty of adultery. What in the world is Jesus saying? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And they thought, yeah, we've lived by that. That sounds perfectly reasonable. I say to you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. If somebody wants to see you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. You have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I can imagine the shock of the people as they were listening to Jesus say this, turning to each other and saying, this isn't good news. This is terrible news. It was bad enough before when we couldn't do this stuff. Now we can't even think about it. So what's Jesus doing? What he is doing is reminding them of their own inability to be the kind of people that God intended them to be by their own human resources. And friends, the good news always starts with an awareness or an understanding or a discovery of the bad news. The bad news is I myself am a mess. It is bad news, but it's necessary. You cannot receive the good news without understanding the bad news. And the bad news is that without God, I am a mess. One of the things that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount was to expose the failure of the people. 
So the law of God was given to reveal the character of God. Its effect is to expose the failure of human beings. Why does God want to expose our own failure? You've got to clearly understand it is never to humiliate you. It is never to embarrass you. It is never that God wants to rub your nose in your own mess. It is always that he might take us and pick us up and clean us up and restore us and change us. But God can never change us until we agree what our problem is and that we actually need his help. So if the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God and the effect of the law is to expose the failure of humanity, then the final thing we need to look at, and this is so exciting, this is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. So what does he mean? Friends, when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, he's not talking about him leaving us some sort of wonderful example to follow. Because ultimately, just following an example will never be enough. If the Christian faith was just disciplining ourselves to follow the example of Jesus, then there would come a time when we would absolutely fail. So to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, I want to look at three passages from three different parts of the Bible and we'll tie it all together and I trust it'll make sense. Colossians 1 and 25, Paul's saying, I have become its servant. He's speaking of the servant of the church. By the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. We need to stop and understand this. Paul's saying, now, post-Jesus, now we are preaching the word of God in its fullness. Because up until now, a huge part of this puzzle has been missing. Which means that when the prophets of the Old Testament gave their message... They would probably go back to their tent at night thinking, well, that was good, but there's still something missing. When Moses came down from the mountain and gave to people the law, he probably thought, it's good, but there's got to be something more. But now Paul goes on to say, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Get a hold of this, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, that word glory doesn't mean heaven. In our Christianese, we've come to kind of associate glory with heaven when that's where we go when we die. That's not the true meaning of the word. Glory, remember, is what we have sinned and come short of. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the moral character of God. Remember John said when, we, when Jesus became a man, we saw his glory. Now Paul is telling us that the fulfillment of the law is Jesus in you. Jesus living his life through you. That's the hope of you hitting the target. That's your hope. That's my hope of glory. Keep that in mind as we look at another verse, Jeremiah 31 and 33. This is God speaking about the new covenant that he is going to establish this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
get a hold of this. The new covenant is not going to involve a revising of the law. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. It's not a revising of the law. It's a relocating of the law. Instead of the law being written in tablets of stone and kept in the Ark of the Covenant, separate to us, an external thing, that same law will be written in our hearts and our minds. What does that mean? Well, I'll give you the third verse. We'll tie it all together. Ezekiel 36 and 27, again talking about the new covenant. And I will put my spirit in you. Now, that was something new at that point. That didn't happen until the day of Pentecost. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I will put my spirit in you. What's the result of that? You will follow my decrees and keep my laws. So let's tie it all together. Number one, Jesus in you by his Holy Spirit is your hope of hitting the target. Number two, I'll put the law in your heart and in your mind and I will be your God. And number three, I will put my spirit in you and my spirit will move you to keep my decrees and keep my laws. So what does that mean? Here is the whole point. If you take one thing home, make it this today. What was a command under the old covenant becomes a promise under the new covenant. What was a command under the old covenant becomes a promise under the new covenant. To help, me under, to help you understand this, let me tell you a story, true story about a guy who was imprisoned, uh, broke the law, finds himself in prison uh, in the UK. And uh, during the time of his prison sentence, he had a, a, a Christian just come and just spend time with him. And ultimately led him to faith in Jesus. Well, when his sentence was concluded, the guy leaves prison. And his first Sunday out of prison, he thought, oh, I've got to get to church. And so he just chooses a church at random, goes in, sits down the front, looks up, and his heart sinks. Because there on the wall, behind the pulpit, Five down one side, five down the other side with the Ten Commandments. And he's sitting there thinking to himself with his heart thinking, that's the last thing that I wanted to see. I know my weakness. I know my history. I know my failure. The last thing I want to do is sit here and read laws that only condemn me. But then God did something remarkable. And as the service progressed, he couldn't take his eyes off these things. And something just changed within him and he started to see these things differently. Because when he used to read those things, it said things like, you shall not steal, and it was a command. But in this moment, when he looked up and read those same words, it said, you shall not steal. And it became a promise. And he discovered the truth of what Ezekiel was saying. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He used to say things like, you shall not covet. And it was a command. But this morning when he read it, it said, you shall not covet. And it had become a promise. It used to say, you shall not commit adultery. It was a command. But this morning it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. And it had become a promise. And he discovered the truth of what Paul was saying, that it is Christ in you that is your hope of glory. It is Christ in you that is your hope of hitting the mark. And the very things under the old covenant that keep us painfully aware of our own inadequacies under the new covenant become wonderful promises that liberate us. Can I hear an amen this morning? Romans 8 and 3, for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. That is a liberating passage. And here's the good news. What the law was unable to achieve in us because of our sinful nature, God did by sending his son. So that when the law says we don't steal, we don't. Not because it isn't nice. Not because we're more disciplined than we used to be. But because something has actually changed inside of me. And there's a promise. I won't steal. If you can get a hold of this, I guarantee that your Bible will come alive in a way that it never has before. Don't stick your hand up. Anybody here today with a problem with stealing? I've got a promise for you. You'll find it in Exodus 20. It used to be a command written in tablets of stone, but now it's a promise written by the Holy Spirit in your heart. You will not steal. If you allow Jesus his rightful place in your life, you will not steal, and it's a promise. Anybody here, don't put your hand up, facing sex, any kind of sexual temptation? And you're wrestling with it? I've got a promise for you today. You'll find it in Exodus 20. It used to be a command written in tablets of stone, but now it's a promise written by the Holy Spirit in your heart. You will not commit adultery. If there's anybody here who's greedy today, I've got a promise for you. You'll find in Exodus 20, used to be command written in tablets of stone. Now it's a promise written by the Holy Spirit in your heart. You shall not covet. It's a promise. And everything that God demands of us through the law, Jesus fulfills by the power of his Holy Spirit living in us. Does that mean we can be perfect? No. And I'll be the first to say no. Because we will struggle until the day we die with our sinful and corrupt human nature. We'll never be perfect. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 18, And he who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He doesn't say we've been transformed into his likeness in the past tense. He doesn't say we will be transformed into his likeness in the, pre in the future tense. He says we are being transformed into his likeness, present tense. The glory that we have come short of, but the glory which is Christ in us is our hope of reaching. It's an ongoing work. We are being transformed until the day we die. You never stop growing in God, friends. Spiritual growth is not measured by how much more of the Bible this year you know than you did last year. That's really, really useful. It's not measured by the fact that I'm going to more conferences this year than I did last year. That stuff's useful as well. It's not even being involved in more acts of service 
this year than you were last year, although that's really, really helpful as well. The true measure of spiritual growth is that the character of Jesus is more evident in me today than he was in the past. It's evidence for me as a husband in the way that I treat my wife. Evidence in me as a father the way that I respond to my children. That as my kids go into a confused world, a godless world, they've got to wrestle with that, they've got to contend with that, but they can come home and look at us and go, that's what's real. That's what's real. That they see something of Jesus in us. For each one of us, it's how we treat our workmates, how we respond to our neighbours, talk to our neighbours. Is there something about our behaviour that reflects the character of Jesus? We are being daily transformed more and more into his image until one day when this life is done, the processes are complete and it says we will be glorified. So you can turn to your friend, your partner, your neighbour and say, I'm going to be perfect one day. There is a condition, I've got to be dead. I'm going to ask the team to come back because we're done. Friends, the reality is, in the meantime, it is a struggle. There will be times when we'll fail. There will never be a time in your life when you can wake up, look in the mirror and go, God must be really impressed with me. And if you're ever tempted to think that, know this, you're on the wrong track. The Bible tells us simply, just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes fixed on Him because our lives will be full of trials, they'll be full of troubles, they'll be full of temptations, full of struggles, full of failures. But as we place our trust in Him, God will continue to mould us and make us into the image of His Son. So let's wrap up by revisiting where we started. Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to apologise to you for a law that you've been unable to keep up until now. I've not come to change something that's been difficult for you. I've come to do something far more exciting. I've come to fulfil it. That by my Holy Spirit living in you, I've come to begin to restore the image, the likeness, and the character of God. And friends, this is our greatest witness to the world that there is a moral character that cannot be explained simply by disciplined living. But that our lives can only be explained by the fact that Jesus is alive and He's living in us, working through us, moulding us, shaping us every day into His own image and likeness. Amen. Is that helpful this morning? Let's pray. Hey, God, I just want to thank you so much, Lord, that as we dig into your word, we, we just get this rich understanding. Number one, of who you are. And number two, of who we are supposed to be, having been made in your image. And Father, we thank you for your foundation, your word. And we thank you, Lord, that it is actually you that makes it work. It's not about our discipline. It's about us being open to you and that, that transforming work of your Holy Spirit that we just say, hey, Jesus, do a work in me. Do a work in me. Change my heart. 
that Jesus in me is my hope of hitting the target. It's not about my good behaviour. It's not about my disciplined living. It's about an absolute transformation that's going on within me. That those laws become promises. Pray that you make that real for us as we just live pursuing you every day. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.